This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today, we are here to talk to Professor Hassan Khaliliya and about his new book, Islamic Law of the Sea, Freedom of Navigation and Passage Rights in Islamic Thought, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Professor Hassan Khaliliya is a senior lecturer in the Departments of Maritime Civilizations and Multidisciplinary Studies and a senior research fellow in the Lyon uh, Riccanati Institute for Maritime Studies and the Lyon uh, Charney School of Marine Sciences at the University of Haifa. His publications include Islamic Maritime Law, an introduction published in 1998, and Admiralty and Maritime Laws in the Mediterranean Sea between 18 uh, to uh, 1050, uh, the Kitab Akriyat as Sufun, and the Nomos Rodion Nawatikos published in 2006. Today's book, Islamic Law of the Sea, discusses the doctrine of modern law of the sea, which is commonly believed to have developed from Renaissance Europe. Often ignored, though, is the role of Islamic law of the sea and customary practices at that time. In this book, Professor Khaliliya highlights Islamic legal doctrine regarding freedom of the seas and its implementation and practice. He proves that many of the fundamental principles of the pre-modern international law governing the legal status of the high seas and the territorial sea the originating in the Mediterranean world are not necessarily European cre- creation. Beginning with the commonality of the sea and the Quran and legal methods employed to ensure the safety, security, and freedom of movement of Muslim and non-Muslim by land and sea, Khaliliya then goes on to examine the concepts of the territorial sea and its security premises, as well as issues surrounding piracy and its legal implications as delineated in Islamic law. Welcome, Professor Khaliliya, to New Books in the Indian World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you for having me. 
It's our pleasure. First, we would like to learn about the author. Can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any mentors. Yes, um, I grew up in Nazareth, um, Palestine, Israel today. Um, I went to high school in Nazareth, then um, moved to University of Haifa, where I graduated from the Department of Middle East History and, uh, and Archaeology. I, I pursued my MA degree in maritime civilizations, specializing in Islamic coastal defense system called Ribats. Then in my second year as a graduate student, I applied to Princeton with the aim to continue my, to pursue my, my academic career in Islamic coastal fortifications. Um, I was admitted in 91, um, you know, in the Department of uh, Nursing Studies under the supervision of Professor um, Abraham Yudovich and, uh, and, uh, and Mark Cohen. Um, this is how I started, you know, uh, where I started my, my graduate studies in Princeton. Um, when I arrived in Princeton, um, I was thinking that, you know, as I said, to pursue my, my dissertation on Islamic coastal fortification, um, but my former advisor, Professor Rudvich, urged me to do something else uh, relating to the law. And um, he tried to convince me to go to, you know, to search and to investigate the history of Islamic maritime laws. I have I had that time no background in Islamic fiqh, jurisprudence. But he addressed he addressed to me one question. He said, Muslims controlled um, a vast region of the oceans, actually the largest uh, maritime empire in history before before the, the age of discoveries. And do you think that such a vast empire, you know, controlling almost, you know, the two sides of the oceans, the Indian Ocean and, you know, until almost there, and not on, until there, um, the eastern coast or eastern littorals of, of the uh, Atlantic Ocean, do you think that such an empire could have could have flourished and trade could have uh, developed without having a legal system. That question, you know, just you know, was you know, the you know was the the factor that motivated me to study maritime law. And that time when I started doing maritime law, uh, I was looking in the Firestone Library and didn't find anything on Islamic maritime law or law of the sea. So I have to go all, you know, across the primary Arabic sources, page by page, taking the second, you know, the second floor uh, of the Paris on Library where the Arabic section and looking for fatwas relating to maritime law. This is how I got to my subject. Great. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going uh, right now to the same department for my PhD and the names that you've mentioned are part of the department's history. And I've noticed that not just you, but there's a cohort of other maritime historians that were supervised by these very names, such as uh, Roxani Margriti, for example, who also investigated the medieval history of uh, the Adan trade between uh, Egypt and uh, southern India through Yemen. So it's interesting to see that they've supervised a number of students working uh, on, on Islamic seas, let's say. That's true. And also Remy Constable uh, was supervised by Professor Rydovich, the late Remy yes. Constable. 
Yes, that's that's really excellent. Um, let's now delve into the book. Uh, first, we would like to know about the sources and the materials that the book draws upon to analyze the Islamic history uh, of the law of the sea. Because oftentimes, uh, there are misconceptions about that Islamic sources are land-centric and the sea is really marginal in these sources. So how did you find uh, that uh, that claim to be true or not while you're researching in the sources? In fact, that you know, um, we are scholarly motivated by uh, by Western scholars, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, even my books, I I don't use the term medieval because uh, you know medieval applies to Europe, doesn't apply to to the Islamic world. Um, across my three books and other articles, other other publications, I use classical Islam. This is the first note. Second note, um, that's true. I and I remember that uh, when I took my comprehensive exam and my advisor my former advisor asked me that, that question is, is you know is does is, is islam afraid of sea and i said okay and i'm you know i'm 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 working on islamic maritime history and he asked me this question uh, you know so that the question should be should be something you know uh irrelevant um definitely uh what i say that they, that you know if you look at the, at the quran the term ard bar are, you know, Bart was mentioned 11 times. The sea is mentioned 33 times. Uh, you know, if you know the sea is mentioned more than the bar, you know, the land uh, yeah, in the Quran. Now, um, in my book, I started with with the pre-Islamic period, okay, and the one of the earliest um, sources on Islamic on Islamic Indian Ocean was written by George Fadl Horan, Arab seafaring in the Indian Ocean. This is a starting point that we, when we deal with them with the with maritime history, at least you know, one, this is one of the earlier sources. When I got to my book, I said, "Okay, we have we, we start with the you know Islamic legal sources. What are the sources of Islamic law? Right? We start with the Quran. Then I got the Quran. I got all all the thirty three verses that deal with that deal with the with the with navigation and the freedom of navigation and." exploitation of natural of the sea's natural resources okay and you discover that most actually actually most of the western scholars who deal with islamic maritime history or islamic legal history do not refer to the quran and this is a big mistake i got to the quran and i you know and i got to the you know classical commentaries and none of the classical commentaries advocate the right of other nations of nations you know, of all nations or whatever nation or superpowers, the right to control or dominate the sea. So, and in the principle that the Quran, the, the Quran says, okay, you have a jurisdiction over 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 offshore offshore uh, zone, but you don't have a jurisdiction total jurisdiction over the high seas. Okay, this is the starting point of my of my research. Then this, you know, I I just de devoted subsection on the commonality of the sea in the Quran. Then we get to the community in the sea and the law of nations. Okay. Um, listen, um, most of the sources, the, the earlier, the earliest sources on international law in Islam were written before the establishment and you know, before the establishment of the of the famous uh, four law schools, the Hanafi, the Hanafi, Maliki. Shafi and uh, and Hanbal. and uh, Seer, the book of the books of Seer, touch in one way or another in coastal navigation in, in, in coastal defense system 
and touch on the freedom of navigation in Islamic Islamic. This is the second source. And the most important source, and that was really an astonishing discovery, is referring back to the Prophet Muhammad. And I have discovered, I mean, I have discovered, these three, these treaties and self-conducts were already published by past scholars. But very few paid attention to the, to the maritime aspect of these, uh, of these treaties and self-conducts. And the most astonishing self-conduct I have come across is the Treaty of Ayala, and I can talk about it if you wish. Right. Um, and, and in pushing back against these misconceptions, uh, misconceptions I guess, you must have faced um, some channel challenging moments in navigating legal and narrative gaps in scripture when discussing the law of the sea. So how did you navigate these gaps and how did you complement the Islamic sources? I went back to, to, the, pre, to the pre-Islamic period. Okay, I started with the Roman. I mean, the Roman, we have the oldest so far. I'm, I'm in the oldest uh, uh, laws are the Roman laws. Okay, but the Roman laws are not, I would say, when we deal with the Roman law, we deal with the Mediterranean. We don't deal with the Red Sea. We don't deal with the Indian Ocean. Okay? Moreover, with, when dealing with the Mediterranean, it's, 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 you know, it's a unique uh, sea because the, the whole Mediterranean was surrounded by the Romans. Although the Romans were not uh, sea travelers, they were, I mean, most of the, uh, most of the uh, sailors and the navies were, consti- were constituted or con- were constituted by, uh, by Egyptians and Greeks. The Romans themselves were not sea travelers. Okay, when we go to the law of nation, okay, uh, we, we don't deal with international law there because they had no power that shared uh, the Mediterranean with the Romans. So most of the European, uh, not only most, the great majority of the early European, early modern European sources refer to Roman law and ignore other nations' laws. I went back to to the early 17th century with the Hogo Grotius. And you know, the, we know the story of what happened with the Katrina um, when, uh, when, uh, when the Netherlands captured you know, the Portuguese, the Portuguese uh, ship in the, mm-hmm. in the Strait of Mata Katrina, yes. Yes. And you know, he, he wrote that, that chapter. He wrote that chapter, you know, the, the, his book because of the, the laws of price, and he has a subtopic on the freedom of navigation. Okay? But he didn't aim, you know, he didn't mean freedom of navigation to non-European, but European. The Europeans have also the right to navigate the, the Eastern Seas. But afterwards, we see that the, when the Europeans penetrated into the Indian Ocean, there, there is nothing called freedom of navigation. And my starting point was how to prove that what, which, what, what was written by Grotius had already its historical background in other nations. The Muslims controlled, I mean, not controlled, the Muslims dominated, dominated the overseas trade, maritime lanes, and and the and the uh, you know uh, uh, maritime trade in the Indian Ocean, 
not by their naval powers, but the, by their trade and, and uh, commercial activities. So the sea, until the, until the penetration of the Portuguese and the, and the penetration of the Portuguese was free from, uh, from uh, intervention of naval powers you know, during that period. Yes, and, but if we backtrack to think about the early Islamic thought, uh, how, how do you think the concept of uh, safe conduct uh, played out in shaping the law of the sea? Where, where does it come from? Ah, safe conduct, uh, uh, a man, you mean? Uh, yes, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the earliest maritime safe conduct I have found is related to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Um, the, the safe conducts um, he granted to the port city of Ayala, Mekna, um, and uh, um, uh, Anajran, and other, other places. I mean, these are the three first places where the maritime aspect is covered there in the safe conduct. Now, if I look at the Prophet Muhammad safe conduct that he granted to Ayala, he has only, by the way, he has only two lines dealing with with that with that uh, with that concept. Two lines. Um, I'm going to read the two lines in a minute, please. Hold. This is a guarantee of protection from from God and Muhammad, the Prophet, the Messenger of God, to Yohanna bin Ruba and the people of Ayla for their ships. And this is a, this is a most important part for their ships, their caravans by land and sea. And they all that they are with them, men of Syria and of Yemen, the seamen are under the protection of God and the protection of the Prophet Muhammad. So two lines. What I what I what I understand from the two lines. What the Prophet said um, that he grant safe conduct to the ships of Ayala, ships belonging to the to the you know the ship owners in Ayala, to the ships arriving in Ayala. To the, ship, to the people arriving aboard Ayala's ships or aboard foreign ships traveling for Ayala, protection of territorial sea and protection of goods and protection of persons. Uh, he talked about the integrity of Ayala through the two lines and the safe conduct simply covers covers Ayala and those who arrive in Ayala and those who live in Ayala. Why Ayala in particular? Because Ayala is located, this is the this is the southernmost part of Palestine, located nowadays in, in Aqaba, it's called Aqaba in Jordan. Um, and Ayala was the port city of the eastern communities arriving from China and India to Palestine and, and, the, and the Mediterranean part, and the Mediterranean region. So the safe conduct normally is granted for, uh, for a period of time of one year, unlike the truce. It covers, um, it, gave, it provides protection to per, in person and properties. In case of the Musta'min, alien merchant, is robbed or killed, the state is held liable uh, for, uh, for, the safe, for, for the safety, uh, for the safety of, of, of the trader and his, 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 uh, his chattels as well. Um, the safe conduct later on was copied by the Portuguese in a different way, different way, called cartas, in Arabic called cartas. But the cartas, in, in, unlike, unlike the safe conduct which was given, which was granted free, the cartas, uh, the person who, who 
holds the cartaz have to, has to pay uh, money in order to get that permission. And this is the way how the Portuguese controlled the overseas trade in the Indian Ocean. Right. Uh, in covering the, the vast geography from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean, do you find Islamic law influenced the development of the doctrine of free, uh, the freedom of the seas in different ways and in different regions? Uh, or do you find there is a, a homogeneity across all of these geographies? If you look at the Indian Ocean, there is nothing called international law. Simply people moved free, freely in the Indian Ocean because there, there, there were no, no naval powers in the Indian Ocean. I mean, we, they, they were late, they were in the, in the Southeast Asia, but not in the western part of the Indian, in the, of the Indian Ocean. Although we talk about, about the Indian uh, um, Bawarish uh, pirate ships, okay? But there was no serious power, serious power in, in, in the Indian Ocean. However, the Mediterranean is a different story. When Muslims captured the Mediterranean, when Muslims captured the eastern, western, and southern parts of the Mediterranean, it is the first time in, in, in maritime history of the Mediterranean when this Middle Sea was shared by two powers, Christians and Muslims. From almost 330, from the days of Alexander the Great, until the rise of Islam in 634 in the Mediterranean, 600. 34, we are talking about almost one millennium, one millennium, right? The Mediterranean was called Mare Nostrum, our sea, by the Romans. It was the sea of the Romans. However, with the arrival of Islam, with the, with the military expansion of Islam, the Mediterranean has been divided by two powers. For the first almost three centuries, Although that European scholars argue differently, for almost three centuries, the Mediterranean, the Muslims controlled the Levant, Eastern Littoral, North Africa, Mediterranean Islands, Sicily, Crete, Sicily, Crete Balearic Islands, Cyprus, and definitely there was some part of the of, of the of the of the Mediterranean. Trade wouldn't have flourished without commercial and without diplomatic and commercial treaties. We have little bit evidence from Byzantine Islamic uh, uh, diplomatic treaties. However, from the 11th century onwards, we have pleasure of treaties concluded between Islamic entities and Christian entities uh, of, of, of Italy, namely um, the commercial empires of, of Italy. Now, through these treaties, through these treaties, we can trace the development of international law, of international law of the sea, because these treaties in, includes, include um, the safety of passengers, the safety of traders, the safety of uh, sailors and ships, uh, the legal status of the ship on the high seas, the legal status of the ship in um, in, in ports and, uh, and inland waters. So we talk really there, we talk about international law of the sea. However, by the, by the time we have treaties in the Mediterranean, we have no treaties, international treaties, either diplomatic or commercial in the Indian Ocean, because the, West, the, the, the overseas trade in the Indian Ocean was controlled by the Arabs, by the Arabs of Yemen and Oman. 
unlike the Mediterranean, which I call it the contested waters, where two powers, Christians and Muslims, fought over the Mediterranean for, for some part of the history. Now, we will get to the Crusaders, despite the enmities that prevailed between Muslims and Christians, there, are, there were treaties that secured freedom of navigation of commercial ships between the Christian and the Muslim world. Yes, and that leads us to the concept of the territorial sea. So how does the book explore this concept and what do you mean by it in both Islamic law and European jurisprudence? Um, the, the only part uh, it deals, uh, sorry, the, you know, the only reference I found in Islamic classical sources to territorial sea refers to the Sea of Hijaz, um, Hijaz uh, between, between Tehama uh, in the south and Aqaba today, Ayala in the, in the north, or Tabuk. We don't know exactly, uh, you know, the, the, which, which, what was the northmost part of, of, the, of, of the coastal, of the northern littoral. In the Sea of Hijaz, we, got, we get back to um, Shafi'i when he talks about, about, uh, about Hijaz and its territorial sea. And he says there, from Shafi'i, Imam Shafi'i, he says there that non-Muslims are allowed to travel across the territorial sea of Hijaz, Bahar Hijaz, or Bahar al-Hijaz. They can stay over, uh, over any island not more than three nights, and but they can't inhabit the islands or the land of Hijaz. This is the only reference which connects connects bit, uh, the the sea to the holy the holy sites or holy holy places of Islam because the Hijaz is called Haram and the, the whole Haram applies to the whole coast of the Hijaz and this part of the world, by the way, is not subject to, uh, you know, to, to be inhabited by non-Muslims, either Jews or Christians. In fact, that although that Prophet Muhammad, uh, during the day, days of Prophet Muhammad, والسلام, uh, Christians and Jews were there until the, until, until, uh, until the reign of Omar, who expelled the Jews from, from Hijaz. Now, if we go to the Mediterranean, the story is different, because the Red Sea was surrounded by an Islamic empire. So there is no threat except for piracy that could that could threaten um, innocent innocent passengers and traders in, in the sea. As regards the Mediterranean, the system is different because the Islamic coastal frontiers, Islamic coastal frontiers, were threatened by by Byzantines and other Christian powers. Therefore, they had to, to create some you know a sort of buffer zone. At, you know, in the sea or offshore zone, in which if any ship arrives or can watch from the sea, from the shore, um, Muslims can repel or defend their their coastal frontiers either by those who station the frontiers or by launching uh, warships against against hostile attacks. So, in the, if we look at the treaties concluded during the 12th, during the late 11th and early 12th centuries and, and afterwards, they say all that is conclude, uh, includes parts called Bihari, its seas, with what meant uh, by its seas um, is the offshore zone of the Islamic littoral. So in this part, ships are not allowed 
to enter to the territorial sea unless it has it is provided it has given or granted uh, a man or the ship is part of or the ship is flying the flag of uh, Dar al Ahed, a board of truce, or in case of distress, Muslims have to provide had to provide assistance uh, in this case. And in case in distress, and ship, Muslims are not allowed to confiscate or to enslave um, voyagers on and seamen or uh, and seamen, even if the ship flying the flag of a uh, um, you know, uh, of uh, in a mistake. Thank you for elucidating the, the distinctions uh, when it comes to territorial seeds. Um, so what insight does the book provide on the relationship between piracy and Islamic legal principles, challenging the conflation of piracy with jihad? Um, it's amazing. When, when reading uh, Western Europe, when hearing uh, Western uh, sources, um, you come to discover that, as you said, that Islam is a land-based is a land-based religion. It's not exactly a land-based religion because Arabia was surrounded by 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 shores. We don't know exactly if Prophet Muhammad sailed by sea or not, but but we have we have to distinguish between um, between Islam between Muslims and Arabs, between Arabs who live who who, who live uh, along the littoral and Arabs who live in the desert. Um, and Arabs are viewed in Western scholarship as people of the of the desert. Okay, but when the Arabs arrived in the Mediterranean, they were accompanied by Yemenis and Omanis, the earliest mariners of the early navy of the early Muslim navy. Um, in addition, of course, to the Greeks and Egypt and Copts, there were also Arabs from Yemen and 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 Oman. So. Um, Muawiyah, who established the first Islamic navy in the Mediterranean, has uh, had uh, uh, two um, two parts. You know, the, the Egyptian part, the, especially the Egyptian navy and the Syrian navy. And in the course of the history, within forty years, Cyprus was captured by Muslim roads, and the Arabs uh, seized um, twice. They seized, seized. They seized. Uh, Constantinople in the aim to capture it. And in eight in the early ninth, ninth century, Crete was part of the Muslim world. Sicily, the biggest island in the Mediterranean, was part of the Muslim world. And Sicily is a different story from because from Sicily, the Muslim world is still almost for 300 years, uh, from 827 until until 1060, 65, uh, the Erect regime, and then the Arabs were there and even later on. And by the way, from 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 Sicily, um, the whole system, the whole common system, the the common law system, was transferred by the Normans from Sicily to uh, to to Britain. And but this is a different story. Now we get back to to the to the to the to piracy. They claim that maritime attacks launched by the Muslims were not were not. A part of jihad, but they were pirates. We read the story about the pirate, you know, those who captured the Crete, and those who captured the uh, Sicily uh, in eight twenty seven. You know, the, the Muslim uh, during that period of time, the Aghlabid 
uh, sent the rebellions, uh, the rebels from from uh, North Africa to to, uh, to Sicily, led by by an old jurist, Assad bin Furat. Um, unfortunately, when when you deal with piracy and jihad, we have two different stories, because piracy is mentioned indirectly, indirectly in the Quran, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, uh, those who fight God and his messenger. And and, uh, and Islam differentiates, distinguishes between piracy and jihad. And Malik ibn Anas was once asked about, about piracy, about the, about the legal status of pirates. And he said, it is more important, it is more important to fight to fight you know to fight piracy than to launch a war against against the Byzantines, and he once asked about this question: What if a lot of Muslim pirates joined uh, a naval expedition against Byzantine targets? Are they exonerated? That's that are they free from being trialed, sent to trial? He said no. Pirates should be trialed wherever you know, even if they are, even if they are. You know, even if they take, even if they take part in in the jihad, so piracy and jihad is two different terms. Unfortunately, again, most Western scholars apply apply piracy to jihad when jihad is nothing is 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 legally different from piracy. So, in case of piracy, the rules set out by Muslims, by the way, um, and, and you know the the punishment uh, against pirate against pirates. They are implemented. They were implemented by the French and the British uh, in the in the nineteenth century. The, the the Quran said they are either crucified, you know, crucifixion, or or exiled, or or or. These, these rules uh, were adopted by by the by the Brit by the, by the British and the French, and they sent the exiled pirates to the New World. Yes. Um, and if you think about the, the notion of piracy further, what contributions does the book make to the understanding of the historical connection between Islamic legal sources and the development of the law of the sea in Christian Europe? Um, if you look at piracy, um, first of all, um, the, the rules set out by, by, Muslims, by Muslim jurists, by classical Muslim jurists, uh, were in one way or another implemented by, 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 by Christian powers. And I may named the French and uh, and uh, and uh, the Britain, the, the British. Second, when dealing with piracy, it's very difficult to combat you know, to combat piracy. You you can combat you can fight piracy in the state level, personal level, and international level. In the in, in the private or personal level, um, you never you never sail you know as you know a ship doesn't sail by itself you know alone without without being in without being in, in a concert on convoy with other ships right so in case of distress you know pirate attacks or uh, or natural distress other ships can you know can, can provide assistance in a state level um i will take an example of you know the fatimid navy in the in the Red Sea. Normally, th- this part of the world was was you know 
was a hut or place for uh, for for pirates, uh, a nest for pirates. Um, when ships arrived in Aden, uh, they were normally escorted by military ships until they arrived to to Aidab. From Aidab, the, the there the 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 maritime lanes are safe. Um, if you look nowadays, what's happening? You know, at least uh, until a few years ago, what's happening on and you know, and um, of the Somali coast, ships, commercial ships, used to arrive in Aden, and they used to be escorted by either Danish or American warships. You know, yesterday is like today. Sorry, today is like yesterday. The mean, uh, you know, the uh, military means employed by Muslims in the medieval times. Were impl- are implemented in our days. Uh, even actually, in fact, when when you sail, uh, of uh, when they sail uh, within the Strait of Malacca, the lo- the longest uh, strait in on 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 earth, almost seven hundred kil- kilometers or more, they are ships are escorted by 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 naval powers. On the international level, mo- most of the treaties I have come across, um, those who can that conclude with the Crusades. With the Mamluks and the Crusades, and uh, Italian city-states and um, North African entities deal with fighting piracy uh, on, on the international level. That's to say that that in case privateers or pirates of whatever entity attacked Islamic ships or vice versa, um, they had to provide the you know that entity had to provide assistance, and if they if the if the privateers happen to be their citizens, they have to be trialed, and they that's the, the, that uh, entity had to pay comp- compens- compensation in case of loss to the cargo or in person. And if we move forward uh, forward in the uh, timeline, in what, in what ways does the book challenge the conventional understanding that the origins of international law of the sea is European? It started with with, Ho, with Hoge Grotius and in the early 1619, and it was it was followed by you know by by, by other uh, European writers. Um, they contend that that um, the, the law the law of the sea is is uh, an is a European establishment, although that although that Grotius refers to the non-Europeans as infidels. And he said that the infidels had their own uh, their own traditions, but he never mentioned what kind of traditions I, uh, they, they, they had. They have. Um, um, I would say that, and, and even actually, Roshus uh, referred to the Bible, but he doesn't refer to the Quran, although that the Quran during his time was already translated into Latin. So he, he um, I, I would say that it's it's, it's a sort of a, a religiously motivated uh, uh, view uh, of, of the conception of the law of the same. Um, this is how you know how I, I, I got back you know as the earliest source referred to the law of the sea is is as 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 Grotius then then Selden uh, added his his commentaries and his uh, conception on the Mary Clausum. That the sea can be controlled. This is a, you know, this is a also the debate between European writers in the seven, in the early seventeenth century. But both writers, Selden and Grotius, 
paid no attention to other nations' contribution to the law of the sea. Although, and you know, and they existed um, long before, 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 before the expansion of the European European uh, um, colonialism in the in the eastern and western hemisphere of, of the in the in the eastern hemispheres. Yes. Many scholars have called your studies as pioneering, establishing, uh, let's say, a, a new field in Islamic uh, legal studies, uh, investigating the, uh, the maritime aspects of Islamic law. Uh, in your observation, where do you see the state of the field and where would you like it to go? I have, you know, I started my first book, I called it An Intro- Islamic Maritime Law and An Introduction, because that time I, that was a unique study. Um, you know, I, as I said that I had to look for for the sources, looking you know, looking uh, throughout the classical and primary uh, jurisprudential sources, page by page, to look for the sources. Unlike our days, which is almost is available in the internet. And um, then the, the next plan was, the next uh, step was to compare. Uh, this what that was my second book to compare Islamic maritime laws with the with the Roman and Byzantine maritime laws. What Islam, what uh, Islam had adopted, what Islam had rejected, and what Islam had 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 uh, uh, established uh, differences and between uh, and then uh, the third step you have to go for international law of the sea, uh, which is basically based on my second dissertation. Uh, I submitted to the law school of law at Saint Thomas University School of Law in Miami. And later on, I developed into a book um, because I wanted to show, you know, to other people what is the contribution, other nation people, what is the contribution of Islam to the development of, of international law. No, I, I couldn't come, I couldn't reach this knowledge without having a legal background. Um, I, I basically, after my PhD in Princeton, I pursued my LL, my LL, LL. M degree in law at the um, um, Tulane School of Law, um, where the where I specialize in advertising maritime laws. This is how how this is how I was exposed to international law of the sea. Um, my my third book. I said, okay, it took me seven years to write this book. Um, I had to look for uh, sometimes in specific terms. In treaties or jurisprudential sources or the like, and to develop the, you know to develop this this concept. Um, in my book, I covered, as I said, as you said, uh, three topics. I never touch on environmental law because of the lack of time, but an article will be submitted in uh, and a contribution will be submitted to a book which will be published published by Cambridge University Press on Islamic. Uh, Islamic maritime environmental law, um, and from from this book, um, I'm going to I'm, I have already embarked on a fourth book on the evolution and the development of maritime laws, Islamic maritime laws, including law of the sea in the Indian Ocean, and you know, if the time if time is left, I'm going to write a book on the Islamic origins of the early British Admiralty Law. That sounds fascinating. Can you say more about your current projects? Um, 
which directions are you taking? Are you developing the same sort of set of questions elsewhere or are you taking on different questions? I'm taking more different questions uh, in, in my in my in my fourth book in my in my coming book. Uh, in fact, um, this book came based on on treaties, a body treaties from the early 10th century CE. Uh, and the treatise called Masail fi Asbab al Bahar Responsum, Responsa regarding maritime issues. Uh, this subject is, you know, covers issues pertaining, for example, to boarding process, how, how you know, positioning and seating on, on the vessel, the use of utensils, laundry, baking, damage of equipment, dispute on board, on board ships. Uh, movement of people, um, collision, seizure. This is a very fascinating. We are talking about about almost twenty five pages, but the twenty five pages cover a you know you know um, vast you know really um, uh, all aspects of life at sea. So this is my project, and uh, my project will be. Uh, I will start with the tenth century maritime treaties. Uh, about the maritime treaties, I and I end up with the with the maritime codes of Malacca from the early 15th century. So I'm going to compare the two the, the treaties with the maritime codes. How such small fishing village became an emporium in the 15th century, and what was the role the role of Changhe, the famous Chinese admiral? on the establishment of Islamic maritime laws in the eastern part of the Indian Ocean. That sounds amazing. And I'm glad that more scholars are paying attention to Omani Bali sources. And uh, recently, the book of Professor Elizabeth Lamborn have mm-hmm. uh, drawn upon uh, the Ibali source Bayan al-Shara from the same period uh, to discuss some aspects of life at sea. And there is much more in Awani sources about maritime law and life at sea that scholars should pay attention to. So I'm glad that you're uh, picking on that. And, and my own dissertation also uh, is really based on on these Ibali sources that I would really would, yeah to 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 uh, to convey more about I guess uh, to 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 the readers. And uh, we've taken a lot of time and uh, this has been great. And I would ask the readers to go further to these uh, publications, to delve deeper into the different chapters, exploring the rich bibliography that the book offers as well, if they want to explore these uh, different subjects. And thank you so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Islamic law of the sea, freedom of navigation and passage rights in Islamic thought, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.